I'm Randy. And I'm Claire. And you're listening to Killer Vibes, a true crime podcast. Welcome to part five of Ted Bundy. This is going to be a long one, friends, so we're going to have a lot of parts. But we left off with me saying that the next victim was going to be really essential to um, one of the prosecutions in Utah. And she is because she survives and she's one of the first survivors who can actually take the stand. So Carol Durange had just graduated high school in 1974 and had a new job at a telephone company. She was 18 and was living at home. She had just gotten a brand new Camaro with like a black top. So she was like living her best life. Um, yeah. So on November 9th, 1974, at 6.30 p.m., Carol went to the Fashion Place shopping mall in Murray, Utah. And she's standing in Walden's bookstore when a man comes up to her. Um, he was dressed really well and he asked her about her car. He said someone had broken in and basically said, that he was a policeman with the Murray County Police Department and asked her if she would come with him to see if anything had been stolen from her car. Um, She asked for ID, but he just laughed. And in her statements, she would say that she just let it go because she had always been taught to trust police officers. So she just went with him, like, without really continuing on with her line of questioning there. So he took her to her car and she said nothing was missing. He would then insist that she come and see the thief who had been apprehended by his partner, which didn't have a partner, but okay. She said that he was so confident that she just believed him in his story. And she was like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. But she then started to get a little suspicious and she said, well, why do I need to go? I didn't see the person break into my car. So do you need me? Um, And... How would there you go? They even know. Yeah, exactly. So she's she's asking some pretty good questions, and Bundy really doesn't have like a like an action like a a good enough response to any of them. But again, he had like presented himself as a police officer, so she trusted him. Bundy would say his name was Officer Rosalind or Rosalind or whatever. So he said that his partner had taken the guy, the thief, to the station, and if she would be okay if they went down and ID'd him. Um, Again, she's kind of confused. She's like, I don't know why you need me to do this, but okay. So he led her to his Volkswagen bug. Seeing the Volkswagen and not a squad car freaked Carol out, and she asked to see his badge again. So she flashed a gold badge. So he flashed a gold badge from inside his wallet. But she said it went so fast that she didn't know what it said or if his name was on it or anything. But it looked like a police badge. I feel like (coughs) if you were if someone was suspicious of you and you were going to show them your badge, you would be so specific about it. But also just for future. Oh, no. Are you okay? (coughs) Yeah, I think I swallowed something weird. The tea place was closed, so. Yes, so I um, didn't get my tea, which was unfortunate. Yeah, but if you're ever in a situation where you think someone is impersonating a cop, you can call 911 and they can put, like, connect you to dispatch and they can tell you, like, who, like, Mm -hmm. what the badge number should be if there's someone there and you can get it all figured out. Yeah, so that's a really awesome, like, modern convenience we have for for poor Carol. She doesn't have a cell phone. And there wasn't Um, 911. No, there was not. And you can learn about that in one of our other episodes. (laughs) So she's just kind of like, okay. And she got into his car with him. 
And they started driving, and immediately she was like, this is not the right way to the police station. So she freaked out and didn't really know if she should scream or try to open the door, but they eventually would end up driving into an elementary school parking lot, and Carol asked him what he was doing. But when she looked over... His face was like totally different. And in a lot of interviews I've heard about Bundy was that his eye color would change if he was getting really intense about something. So he had very poignant blue eyes. But if he was talking about murder or even when he was doing his cross-examination, people would say that his eyes would go black. And Carol kind of describes this as well. And she was like, I don't even know. I don't know, but that's just what people would say. And honestly, like, it could have just been his pupils dilating because your eyes do, like, your pupils do move outwards with, like, excitement or an expression of emotion. So maybe that was something that was happening. So his demeanor changed completely. He didn't answer her question about what he was doing. And then he just lunged at her. And she got handcuffs and put one on her right wrist and he tried to put it on her left wrist but he missed and actually clipped it again to her right wrist so this is like so huge that he missed this because if he hadn't she would have been handcuffed and she may have died in that car but because he missed and she was fighting back from him so much because he hadn't hit her over the head like he usually does he had clipped it onto her same wrist and when she was still fighting with him he pulls out a revolver and he points it at her and says if you don't stop screaming I'm going to kill you I'll blow your brains out so Carol's just like Okay, and she doesn't. She's not handcuffed. So what she does? But he thinks she is, yes, right? But she, he thinks she is, and her hands are behind her back, and she literally opens the car door behind her, tumbles out of the car, and bolts into unco- oncoming yes, traffic. Carol. Yes, yes. <laughs> so he's chasing her and brandishing this gun, which he never used a gun in any of his attacks. So that was kind of weird that he had this with him and I'm like half expecting it to not be a real gun almost or like it wasn't loaded or he just found it or something I mean he was just using it as a way to subdue her but so she's getting out of the car ran really fast and she stops an oncoming car that was being driven by Wilbur Walsh and his wife Mary is in the passenger seat and so they see this poor young girl who's like flailing her arms has handcuffs on her wrist and she's She just pulls open the door and she's like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And then she sits down and she said he was going to kill me. He was going to kill me if I didn't stop screaming. And the Walshes immediately like flip a Yui and start heading towards the police department. Carol is sobbing and can't even really control herself. She's at the police department. She's finally um, at a safe place. And she's shown a few mug shots when she starts to calm down, but she doesn't recognize anyone. And the police search the area where the parking lot, where the car was, and they found a key to oh, good. the handcuffs. <laughs> I was about to say, how did they get those off her? <laughs> yeah, and the key would be really important because... This specific key was not utilized by the Utah Police Department in their handcuffs, so they had a different brand of handcuffs that the police did not use. And it wasn't like it wasn't like a toy handcuff set from like constructive play things or whatever, you know, for like a 
a costume. It was a real set of handcuffs. And so because the key didn't fit into the type that Utah police use, it was kind of like a big piece of evidence. And then they also found her shoe. After the attack, she would later find droplets of blood on her jacket, and they could only test the blood for what type of blood it was, and it was O positive. And they got a very good description from her, and they sort of like started to connect the dots about the other missing women in Utah, so Melissa, Laura, and Nancy. And the police sketch that they come up with from Carol looks exactly like the police sketch in Seattle, obviously, but they they didn't connect the two yet. So they didn't compare those two pictures at all before the, this is before the internet. So there isn't like a major database where they can log all of this information. And if there is like something that is congruent in another case from another state or county, it'll pop up. But like that doesn't happen here because you don't have a computer to do that for you. So this is like, again, the first time we have someone who survived an attack who can actually describe what happens and she'd be instrumental in the trial in Utah. When was John Douglas's thing created? The thing that you upload the description of crimes to? What is that called? Oh, yeah. The the database thing. Uh, Is it VICAP? Maybe. That sounds right. When was that made? I don't even know. I can look it up really quick. Um, 1985. Oh, they just yeah. missed it. It mm-hmm. is it is VICAP though. Yes. Okay. A violent criminal apprehension program is the moniker. No, the moniker. The acronym. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I've said monic. I I use the word moniker so often now that it <laughs> yeah. just is associated with everything. And that's the thing where that you can like upload a description of a crime so that you can catch if there's a serial offender. Mm-hmm. Is that what that says? It is. Yeah. So, it, or did the, I just like say some acronym? The description that I heard of? is um, it's a unit of the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation responsible for the analysis of serial, violent, and sexual okay. crimes. Darn, they just missed it too. Yep, they missed it by like five years. That sucks. Yeah. So he had already been sentenced to death by this time. Yeah. And the guy from Mine Hunters made that. Yes, he did. Which is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. <clears throat> so on the same night that Carol is abducted, uh, November eighth. Uh, 1974, uh, the Kent family went to a musical at the Viewmont High School. Dean and his wife, Belva, were accompanied by their 17... I know, right? Belva. So exotic. Were accompanied by their 17-year-old daughter, Debbie. And before they went to the performance, they dropped off Blair, Debbie's younger brother, at a roller rink, promising to be back by 10 p.m. to pick him up. So at the performance, Jean Graham, who had recently graduated college, ran into an attractive male stranger who said he needed help finding the owner of a car. Jean was in charge of the show and said no, but she would notice him a few times that night wandering around and she had a few awkward encounters with him. He would get all up in her business. It was a little creepy. Debbie would leave the show early since it had gone on longer than 10 p.m. So she went to go pick up her brother and then she said she would just be back to go get her parents after the performance was over. At around 10 p.m., some residents of an apartment complex would hear two short screams from the parking lot of the school. The screams were described as if someone was in mortal peril. It freaked out one of them enough that they actually went out to look at the parking lot and they didn't see anything. But another parent who was picking up their daughter would see a Volkswagen bug bolt out of the parking lot around the same time, but they didn't see the driver. 
Debbie's parents waited after the play, but Debbie didn't show up to come and get them. And then they noticed that their car was still in the parking lot. Her brother was also still waiting at the roller rink for his sister to come and get her to get him. Sorry. So they called the police around midnight and described her as 17, small, with brown hair parted down the middle. Bunty would also confess to killing Debbie and would name the location of her body. And this is actually something that has happened recently that's really cool. So police found a patella, or your kneecap, where Bundy said she was buried. And he confessed to this murder like two days before his execution in January 1989. So in 1989, the police had just given the patella bone to Deborah Kent's family to bury. But it was never confirmed to actually be a piece of her body. So in 2015, the Utah police were reviewing missing persons cases and found out that the bone was still in the family's possession. The family agreed to hand it over, and so the police sent it in for testing, and it was confirmed as Debbie's through DNA, um, which is kind of cool. So the police didn't release this information until literally last week on March 15th, 2019. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. Cool. So Bundy, during that time obviously had already like confessed to her murder but now we officially know yes he killed her because they he led them directly to a piece of her body so that was a big deal they knew that back in 2015 but the police re-released it this past week because of the renewed interest in the Bundy case so that's kind of a cool piece of information we get to know about now so it wasn't until January of uh, 1975 that another girl would go missing. And I'm pretty sure that's because Bundy was like finishing up his semester at Utah in, um, in Salt Lake. And so he actually got a C average his first semester of law school and flunked out of two of his classes. So he was not doing very well. And he was like really unfaithful to Elizabeth at this time, too. Like he had a whole bunch of girlfriends during this time period, and they would, like, pop up because of the um, investigation as well. And he dated a girl named Claire at this time, which, like, freaked me out a little bit when I was reading it. (laughs) But, yeah. Again, Lynn Banks, she was friends with Elizabeth and brought up the fact that more women were going missing. Elizabeth was just like, I don't even know what to do. I just, I I don't know. And she had already put his name on the list, but it like just renewed her suspicions about him. So again, Bundy's still involved with Elizabeth at this point. We're moving into the uh, murders in Colorado in 1975, which my family was here for this. So Karen Campbell was 23 and on a trip in Aspen, Colorado with her fiance and her fiance's kids. On January 12th, she left the lobby at the inn called Wildwood Inn and headed up to the hotel room that they had um, were renting out for a magazine. So she didn't come back down and her fiance started to get a little bit worried. So he went up to the room. Wait, rented out for a magazine? What is that? Oh, no. Um, they had rented the room and she went up to go and get the magazine oh, from to get the room. I was like. Wait a second. Sorry. Okay, okay, I okay. I, yeah, I, I kind of like, it's typed weird in my script. No, you're good. So I messed that up. Okay. So their room was on the second floor. So he went up there and she wasn't in there, but her purse was still there and the magazine she was looking for was still on the table. So he decided to just like scour all of the bars in Aspen, which makes sense. It's like a huge ski town and it was like winter break still. And so I'm sure there's a ton of people in Aspen at this point. 
So he goes to all of the local bars, doesn't see anything, doesn't see Karen at all. He starts to get a little worried. And so at 10 p.m., he called the police and the search began. It wouldn't be until a month later on February 18th that a person spotted a group of birds circling an area along Owl Creek Road. On closer inspection, they found the nude body of Karen Campbell on a snowbank that was completely surrounded by blood, which I'm sure was super terrifying to stumble upon. In the snow? Yeah. That makes it worse for some reason. (laughs) Yeah, no, it does. At this time, on March 5th, 1975, after a month after Karen's body was found in Aspen, four human skulls would be discovered on Taylor Mountain in Washington. So a group of forestry students uh, were marking trees when they found the battered skull of Brenda Ball in the woods. So if you remember, Brenda Ball was one of the first women who went missing. Um, They called the police, and since the spot was only a few miles off from the site that had been found the previous year where Denise and Janice's bodies were found, they, like, were all over that place pretty quick. The police would discover the skulls of Susan, Roberta, and Linda around the same area where Brenda's was found. Each gravesite was roughly 150 feet apart. Again, Donna Manson's skull wouldn't be found until 1978, so her fate would still be unknown. Because they had found all of the skulls and a few other fragments here and there, people quickly jumped into, like, Satanism and cult sacrifice, but that would prove to be untrue, obviously. But police did know that the um, four women didn't just wander into the woods and get lost. So again, Roberta was actually considered to be a suicide victim for a really long time. But the fact that her body had been found 200 miles away from Oregon State University in the middle of the Cascade Mountains, that just like didn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, And she was also found with all of these other women that had been missing and she looked just like them. So this victim profile was coming out. There had obviously been a serial killer in Washington at this point. So it was all kind of out there. So Bundy would confirm in his um, statements that Taylor Mountain would be his dub site. And it got the nickname Bundy's Graveyard later on. (laughs) And in his tapes, he states in the third person that it was the perfect place for a killer to dispose of his garbage. And if you look at the photos... (laughs) Yeah, I know. He's a total jerk. And if you look at the photos where the bodies are actually found, there's a lot of underbrush. You would never see them. There was a ton of animal activity as well. So that's why they're bones were all scattered all over the place and nothing was really in one clear location. Bundy would say in his confession tapes that he buried a few of the bodies, uh, quote, when I was really going all out and took my time. Yeah, I did. It's quite clear. I mean, without questions, those who have been found were not and those who haven't were buried. This also insinuates the fact that there may be more bodies up there. And this goes for all of his dump sites. Like, he would say that he buried a few bodies, not only on Taylor Mountain, but also in different locations in Utah, Colorado, etc. He also said that he would go back to the sites because he had necrophilia, which is basically people who like to have sex with corpses. And he would say that he would actually bring makeup and put makeup on the bodies when he went back, which is just disgusting. That's weird. Isn't, it really, isn't that weird? So... He would just violate the 
the bodies of these women in every way you could possibly think to defile a body. So that's really gross. Um, he'd also kind of say that he was disappointed a few times because he would go back and like scavengers had kind of destroyed the body and he would be upset about that. Well, um, because he wanted to go back and like, yeah, I'm like, okay, stop. <laughs> I like how in the yeah. beginning of our podcast, when we did at Kemper, we were like, preface for like 10 yes. minutes saying that and now we're just <laughs> this like is gross and he had sex with her dead corpse he did <laughs> i know we're just like really chill about it now yeah, it's well, funny well you know it's he's a creepy serial killer who's also a necrophiliac and would chop up women's bodies so like what do you expect it's just gonna anyway so yeah that would that's that's happening and they this is like a huge break in the case because they had only figured out that Denise and Janice were were like confirmed murdered. And now they have four other women who are confirmed murdered. And then later they'd have Donna, who is officially confirmed as a murder victim. And of course, Georgianne would be the final piece to the puzzle through the confession tapes. So what a stroke of luck that those forestry students were up there I know. at that time. My boyfriend's a forestry student. I'm going to be like, look for dead bodies. <laughs> look for when dead you're bodies forestry while you're up there. We can find another Bundy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So with that, we're going to end part five and we're going to have a part six and possibly a part seven. We'll see. Um, but yeah. So uh, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. Bye. Bye.